You're listening. You're listening. You're listening. You're listening to Music Biz 101 and more. If you want to learn about the music industry and you don't know where to go, tune in to WP88.7. Brave new radio. We got managers, producers, record labels, concert promoters galore. Wednesday at 8 p.m. Marconi Emeritus retired, not Emeritus, actually. I'm having problems getting that uh, worked out. Getting his Emeritus status, that is a, yes. a doggone shame. But what we should be talking about is you, the listener. How are you? How's everybody doing today? That's great. It's good to hear from you. We have uh, a guest today on Music Biz 101 and more, who we will introduce in a moment, won't we, Dr. Esteban? Yes. Before we do that, you want to give thanks, Dr. Esteban? I think we have to give thanks. It is time for us to give thanks. So we want to give thanks to the folks at Van Dyne, Bruno Inc. and White Hat Management with artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, Kiss, Zach Brown. There's only one singular place to go for your band or your, if you're solo, solo artist, business management, you want to go to vb-cpa.com when you're ready. And at the same time, we want you to know we should be giving thanks to the folks at the Forefront Group, F-O-U-R, Forefront Group, and especially Christine Oi. They, who is a wealth manager there. She's helped thousands and millions and billions of professionals manage their investments, plan out for their retirement. When somebody like you is thinking of building a bridge to your personal financial future, you, and I'm talking about you, need to think about the Forefront Group. And you need to go to Christine Dots. Oi. They at Forefront.com. Leave the last oil off for savings. Dr. Esteban, what is happening not too far away in the not too distant future for our listeners? Coming, we know now it's really coming. Yes. This week we got a PDF of the seventh edition of Managing Your Band. That is right. New York Times is waiting with bated breath to put it on the bestseller list. Bated breath. They have a lot of tiny little fish in their mouth. That's right. Those little fish to the big fish. But but yes. It's here for real. Seventh edition. We almost have a physical copy, even though it's digital. It's digital. Will be physical. We should sell it as an NFT and make millions. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's not in our book. No. NFTs. Because music biz, as we all know, changes every 15 minutes. Right. And actually... 
that's one of the things that we're going to speak about with our guest today, because she is an agent of change. And there's a pun in there because she has been an agent and she has been an agent who has had to change and pivot from what she was doing to what she is doing. And she is a former, no, she was an alum. Once you're an alum, you're not a former because you are what you are. And she is an alum of the Music Business Program at William Patterson University. Her name is Lindsay Kratz. Lindsay Kratz! All right. Kratz, you'll speak with us now, Lindsay. You'll talk when spoken to. Good to have you here, Lindsay. Yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm so honored to be here. And I have to say that both Dr. Marconi and Professor David, you both look younger than the last time I saw you like 15 years ago. Somehow oh. it's magical. You. I love it. You, do. you look very, very uh, vibrant. Yeah. I mean, the music biz teaching world is treating you well, and I'm thrilled. Ah, so, okay, let's get, uh, let's get started. You received your, no, where did you do your internship before you received your diploma? So before I got my MBA at William Patterson, I was set up on a really great internship at Columbia Artists Management, thanks to you, Dr. Marconi. Wow. Um, you had a contact over there, Jennifer Siegel. Um, and because I was a classical violinist most of my, all of my life until I took my MBA, um, that was kind of the direction I wanted to head in. Although, you know, of course the degree was heavy focus on publishing and kind of the, you know, the rock pop world. Mm -hmm. My direction was always kind of more classical, um, but I didn't even know what was out there. So, um, so you guys set me up on a really great internship at Columbia Artists Management and that opened my eyes to this whole section of the industry that we call the performing arts, which is everything that's not pop and rock, you know? It's classical music, it's opera, it's dance, it's world music. It's all of those other things that you go to a performing arts center and see live when you're not, you know, deeply involved in the pop music world and listening to the radio and all of that. <laughs> so, so. Basically a nonprofit world, isn't it? Well, yes, it is basically a nonprofit world. Um, there are lots of not-for-profits out there, um, mainly on the presenting side. So when you're when you're going to a stage, when you're taking an artist to a stage, oftentimes that organization is nonprofit, and they have to, um, you know, a break-even in that world is considered a success. And then the fundraising takes care of a lot of the rest of it, right? So fundraising and development is a huge part of what happens there, getting patrons to buy season tickets and then to buy in and, and make other donations and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that world functions much differently. Um, there's a lot more heavy focus on patrons and donors, donor activities, mm -hmm. you know, benefits, that sort of a thing. Right. So what did they have you doing at Columbia at the time? So at Columbia, after I was done, like picking up dry cleaning and getting coffees for people, <laughs> yeah. I did. Um, I made a lot of press kits. I mean, this is back in 07 when people were still mailing out a physical piece of paper or a folder. Oh, my God. Paper. They were mailing it out and they would put a stamp on an envelope. Right. So I was like right. amassing press kits and, and doing all this stuff right before the huge sort of drive to go digital happened. So I was doing press kits. I was working on tour, um, tour coordination and helping all of these artists. Some of them were large dance companies. And so the idea of getting you know, 50, 60 people from point A to B to C across the country. It's just a massive undertaking. Mm -hmm. And we need boots on the ground for the tour. 
in the tour bus, all of that, but then you also need someone in the office controlling it too. So I helped a lot with that sort of aspect of things as well. Everything from making sure they checked into the hotel to making sure they arrived at the venue to making sure sound check went smoothly and, you know, making sure everybody got a dinner that night to everything in between. Yeah. Now I had a, uh, well, he was a former student, but became a friend and he, uh, managed Jeff Buckley, who was uh, partly managed Jeff Buckley, who was a great artist, uh, you know, in the basically in the pop field. And mm -hmm. then he also would manage uh, European orchestras that would come over and have three or four shows or whatever. And he said it was actually worse than being on a rock tour between them wanting to drink every minute and somebody not being want to be on the same floor as somebody else, mm -hmm. and people sleeping with each other, he said, was, was, was <laughs> you never would have expected that this little orchestra, did you find that it was chaotic as well at times? At times, yes. At times it was chaotic. Um, the, the thing I found to be the most difficult is the personalities of the artists, right? Because um, when you're in the office, everyone has to behave. But when you're out on the road, it's a chance for everyone to kind of let loose a little bit. And, yeah. you know, the idea of having to control that many people and make sure everybody was doing everything the way they should be. Not easy, not easy. And you might see an orchestra on stage and performing, you know, at the height of their careers and being incredibly uh, stoic and, and calm and in control. But nope, not always the case after the show. <laughs> so. All right. So yeah, yeah, there, there was always that. Um, and in addition to that stuff, I, I did a lot of stuff on the phone too, I was always kind of talking to presenting organizations to make sure all the contracts were signed. And, you know, if they had tried to cross anything off on the contracts, there was always a back and forth with negotiating. And, you know, so it's kind of ran the gamut of everything um, involved in getting a performer on stage, you know, patrons come and see somebody they sit there, they enjoy the show and they leave, but there, there's sometimes 18 months worth of work that goes into getting that person in the right costume on stage with the right music, with the right sound system and the right lights. I mean, it is, it is a lot of work. Okay. So yeah. where'd you go from there? You graduated then with the MBA. Yep. So then I stayed at, at Columbia Artists for a couple of years and then I went to Young Concert Artists, um, which was funny, but it was right across the street. So when I went to my usual coffee place, I saw all my old friends at Cami. <laughs> but I would go to uh, Young Concert Artists was an organization that was started in the 60s, a nonprofit yeah. to help sort of launch the careers of up and coming classical musicians. Um, they would do uh, a juried competition every year and the best and brightest from all over the world would come and audition and it was really cool to see you know 14 12 14 year olds just mm -hmm. absolutely phenomenal prodigies and then the board or the you know the judge would decide who was going to win and, and they would choose five or six winners sometimes and they would win basically a career launch they would win a couple years on the roster with young concert artists we would get them a premiere in New York and a premiere in Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center. We would also sort of take care of the bulk of their um, promotion and marketing for a couple of years and see our whole goal there was to try to get them up to the next level. So up to a bigger management agency, Opus 3, Columbia Artists, IMG, some of the bigger, yeah. the big three of the performing arts world. So we would try to launch them into the next phase. 
Okay, and how long yeah. did you stay there? I think that was about three years. So long ago, I'm having trouble remembering, but that was about, <laughs> I think that was about three years. And you were still um, in New York. Still in New York. But at the time, I really wanted to marry my boyfriend and he was in Pennsylvania. So I approached a boutique agency, one of the only ones in Pennsylvania, Balin Artists. And I said, I really want to come work for you. And he said, I don't have any job openings. And then about three weeks later, he called me and he goes, I have a job opening. <laughs> so it pays to just reach out to people, whether they're hiring or not, I, th I think, and yeah. say, I like what you do and, and what you're doing, I think fits with who I am. And can we keep in touch? You just never know. Yeah. Um, yeah. At the time, I didn't know if anything would come of it or not, but lo and behold, it did. And I stayed there six years. Right. Yeah. So that was a smaller, more boutique agency that uh, we managed Turtle Island String Quartet and Julie Fowlis, who's a really phenomenal Scottish vocalist. Um, we had a couple dance companies, Flamenco Vivo. Um, and we had some children artists, children's artists as well. Um, and I did a lot of the booking there. So that's where I really um, honed in my sales chops, I guess you could say. Right, right. So we did the uh, company act as a middle agent too for some of the bigger acts that were playing a smaller venue. You know what? Um, so Balin Artists was a really cool place because I think some of the bigger agencies don't have the time and energy to put into the acts that are difficult to book, the acts that need more attention. And so Mark Balin there, who I respect so much, um, took on these artists and was willing to just really have these deep conversations with presenters about who these artists are and why they should be booked. There's mm -hmm. so much noise out there. There's so many artists looking to get work mm -hmm. and it really takes an advocate for these artists. You know, there, there's just too much work involved in getting an artist on stage. And you really need someone who's willing to call these presenters once a week and mm -hmm. keep this stuff on their radar. Um, because they have too many choices. Think about it. I mean, I was an agent calling the entire West Coast, along with, say, maybe 40 other agents calling and pitching artists who are similar. So these presenting organizations, I mean, they had a limitless amount of choices. And so we had to stay in front of people, like relentlessly to the point of annoyance. Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that what sales is? Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I would call these people, you know, nonstop and you wind up forging a really sort of a great relationship with all the venue managers, the buyers. Um, and unfortunately, you have to toe that line always between pushing your agenda and being super annoying. Because so was, it, was that in Philadelphia or where? That agency was in Doylestown, which is just outside of Philadelphia suburb. Yeah, I know what those so. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and I was there for six years and, uh, you know, it's just a great agency. It, that agency closed um, right at the time of the pandemic hit, actually. But by then I had moved on to IMG and actually, you know how it is, like you keep networking. And so somebody from IMG contacted me and said, hey, I think you're doing great work. Um, and we need a West Coast agent. Would you like to come and give it a shot? And of course, I thought about it for exactly a half a second and said, yes, immediately I'll do that. Right. <laughs> I didn't play coy. It was like, I remember saying to my husband once, if I could just work at IMG Artists, I feel like <laughs> I really made it. 
<laughs> yeah. And it's true. like I yeah, it's like I made the universe do that because they called. So yeah. What did you do then? You were so there, I was the West Coast agent handling it felt like being called up from the minors to the majors. The artists were more expensive more high maintenance, more well-known. I mean, the artists on that roster, Renee Fleming, Emerson String Quartet, just these, yeah. these artists that have high visibility in the classical world, multiple Grammy winners, you know, they perform at, at the Grammys. They're just, they're seen and known. Um, but it was still the same thing where you have to call people on a weekly basis, even with an artist who's world renowned, who's won 12 Grammys. Right. You got to call someone on a weekly basis to get them to pay attention, mm. you know? So that's, that, that was always the challenge in sales and being an agent is, you know, the persistence, the level of persistence it took even to get a Grammy winning artist right. booked. Right. And it's also knowing the value of that artist in the marketplace. Yes. Yes. You know, I would agree with that. The marketplace you're calling and their marketplace where you're calling. Mm hmm. Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, at the agency, we have this idea of how much we can charge for that artist. Yes. And then we speak to the venue and they have an idea of what they're willing to pay. And then the artist has an idea of what they're worth. <laughs> right. So you as the booking agent have to sort of run that middle ground and try to make everybody happy. Right. right sure. Yeah. <laughs> Which might mean you're a little bit of a punching bag in certain situations because you're just trying to make everybody happy you know yeah, you gotta have thick skin certainly at times yes yes you do and i didn't always i'll be totally honest with you it really got to me sometimes like yeah. you know yeah. the rejection of it or the fact that you felt like you could never make everybody happy um yeah. now someone like uh renee fleming and and uh let's say yo-yo ma have branded themselves so uh, broadly Mm -hmm. Renee doing a uh, solo uh, recital and then she's singing with an orchestra then she's doing the Met then she's doing sort of this semi rock sort of um, <laughs> cool thing and then she's doing a Christmas uh, special mm -hmm. uh, and that must take to hold that credibility and to have the artist want to try that without with worrying, I guess, about their credibility. Uh, it's really a tightrope that you're walking. Yes, and I mean, you know, in her case, she's at the top of her game and probably one of the hardest working women in the performing arts. Mm -hmm. um, there are not many human beings out there that can do what she does. It's just the sheer amount of performing she does. Um, some artists, after they work that hard, get to the level where they, you know, can just accept what they want and turn down the rest. Mm -hmm. And that's a very, very rare situation. And we yeah. all, as agents, I think, wish we had that holy grail artist yeah, of that we could just take incoming calls all day long and say, I'm sorry, she's busy. I'm sorry. No, yeah. we're, so, we're filled up. No, you know, it's that's like that once in a lifetime kind of an artist. Right, right. right. Usually yeah. it's the other way where we feel passionate about somebody. We're trying to get the industry to recognize them in yeah. some way. Right. Um, which probably parallels the pop world in a way, you know, you spend two, three oh, years building, yeah. building, building, and it yeah. may or may not come to anything. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so you stayed there. How long at IMG? 
IMG. I stayed there until the pandemic. Um, so it was actually almost exactly a year ago when I was laid off. Mm. Um, and I saw it coming. I think we all, you know, we knew that the performing arts couldn't sustain, sure. couldn't keep us all paid. Um, and, you know, there were, of course, pay cuts across the board in the entire industry, but the, it wasn't still wasn't enough. So I think I think um, about 70 to 80 percent of the company just just gone. Um, yeah. And I was a part of that. And I can't fault anybody. You know, I mean, when your livelihood is booking live events and there is no possibility of any live events for maybe years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, nobody knew. What are you going to do? I mean, so we all saw it coming and we were all expecting it, but it's still like it really hurt bad when it happened, you know, um, because I had been in the performing arts for 15, working in the performing arts for at least 15 years. And to be to be laid off still felt like a massive rejection. Artists were hurting all of my agent friends. You know, some of them were still employed, but it, it was just, I don't even know how to describe it. It was just yeah. a huge disaster. Yeah, you sure. so you got out of music now? Yeah, so I actually did have a couple job offers back in the music industry um, soon after I was laid off, but I didn't take them um, because it felt like, it felt like a good time to reassess and reevaluate. And I think, um, I'm sure you can speak to this as well, but the music industry is a place that, you could work yourself to the bone and work 24 hours a day and maybe maybe never feel like you're doing enough. And I was kind of to the point where I had felt a little bit chewed up and spit out. Yeah. And so this um, forced time off gave me a really good opportunity to really think hard about career. You know, I I turned 40 last year and I was thinking, what do, what do I want to do when I grow up? Right. So, you know, I, I took a couple months. I did some yoga. I hung out with my son, who's five. We did a lot of cooking and baking. Yeah, he's his name is Benny. He's the best kid on the whole planet. <laughs> um, but you, I think it's, it's very interesting when you get an opportunity to step back and view your life from a few feet away, you know? What have I done thus far career-wise? And I was always somebody who cared so much about my career and worked diligently and cared what everybody thought and wanted to know that I was doing a good job always, you know? Um, so facing massive rejection and a global pandemic, um, you just, uh, it's really nice to have a little time off and kind of reevaluate. And I thought, you know, maybe I need to know what, what's out there in the rest of the world. And, and more than that, are any of my skills transferable? Is what I was doing in the music industry even applicable anywhere else? Or am I just going to get rejected hard no matter where I go? Because I only have music industry experience. Yeah. Yeah, it was my big fear. And the answer is no. A lot of things that you do in the music industry, a lot of that work, it's all transferable, you know? So the sales piece in particular, learning how to talk to people, um, learning how to listen, mm -hmm. learning how to guide the conversation. These, these sales tools are tools that are badly needed everywhere. 
So here I am at a startup specifically geared towards sales. So we're called Title, which is not the streaming platform. <laughs> um, but we're essentially an outsourced sales team. So there are software service companies and other types of organizations who are just really floundering in their sales or they've plateaued and they want to you know, work on a new initiative or something. Um, we are sort of this cracking team of salespeople who will come in and help, whether that means make the initial phone calls or get into the full sales cycle. Um, that's what we're helping organizations do. It turns out there's a huge need for it. And, uh, you know, we've only been around for two and a half weeks since we've actually officially launched. And we're already like just way far ahead of monthly recurring revenue. And there's a lot of great interest. So we're just trying to ride this wave and I'm um, trying to get a little sleep here and there, but. <laughs> what kind of companies have uh, found you guys? Well, we're working with a couple software companies. Mm -hmm. um, we do a lot in the SaaS mm -hmm. space, software as a service. Um, so those are the types of companies who need a lot of sort of legwork to make sure that they're connecting with the right people, the people who, you know, it takes a lot of education in the marketplace so that everyone knows that you exist and what your product or your service even is. Yeah. Um, and so we provide that, you know, we have, we have this phone system where our business development reps can make a hundred calls in two hours. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone doesn't pick up the phone, it just rings to the next one, rings to the next one. Right. So we set them up with this really fantastic tech stack um, and we put them on the phones and they're really great salespeople. So, you know, we're able to just generate a whole lot of business in a short amount of time for our clients. And right now, you know, there's so much interest with this type of work that we haven't honed in on who we really want to work with yet. You know, we're working with SaaS companies, we're working with some service companies, some hardware companies, um, some healthcare and um, what do we call it? wellness types of organizations as well and i think eventually we might hone in but right now it's just kind of fun to maybe find our identity yeah. you know yeah good well best of luck thank you i feel like i've been talking so much <laughs> no that's fine that's why we have you on the air and we have to find out dave have you finished your last course <laughs> our, our viewers we haven't eaten. Lindsay and I haven't eaten. Have you finished that course? I have this water here. That's, That's all. Right. <laughs> For our listeners, as they they had their private conversation where Lindsay would just not stop talking, even though it's mm. with her, um, I, all I did was eat. So I, I actually have completed my meal. I've completed my beverage. And now I have water like Lindsay. So I'm just happy. All right. All right so you probably have a question now, since I've been hogging. No, I'm done. Thank you, Lindsay. Goodbye. No, Lindsay, stop. Um, I have a whole bunch. One thing, uh, I think we need to take one step back because you made this point how you wanted to marry your boyfriend. Who mm -hmm. Pennsylvania. At that point, did your boyfriend know that he wanted to marry you? Uh, yes, he did. We, we talked about it first. I wasn't just like, listen, this is happening. I got a job <laughs> in Pennsylvania and I'm moving in. Right. <laughs> yeah, we we talked about it at length and we were thinking, well, should we just do like the New York, Pennsylvania thing? Should we just, you know, commute to see each other? And we did that for a little while, but um, we were kind of getting to the point where we wanted to like maybe buy a house together or, you know, mm. all that stuff, you know, house, dog, baby, isn't that the order that that's what we did we, in that exact order? We did it. So um, mm. 
Yeah. And I, you know, because I found that agency for Balin Artists in Pennsylvania, I thought, well, let's just give it a shot. And, and it was sort of, again, it was like the universe just made that all happen. You know, I, uh, I asked him for a job and he said no. But then a couple of weeks later, somebody walked off the job and then here, there I was fresh in his mind because I said, hey, I want to yeah. work for you. So. And then my uh, 16 year old daughter keeps talking about manifesting things. And so then you also were, were manifesting the idea of one day I want to work for ICM. And then that happened for you. Yeah, IMG actually. But what, yeah. what did I say? I see. I am. You said I see, but it doesn't matter. It's kind of the same. Same thing. Whatever. You know, they both start with an I and they're three letters. So nobody cares. Yeah. So you mentioned a, a number of things that I think we should talk about because I think a lot of listeners are not as familiar with your the world you were in mm-hmm. as they are with. We've had Rob Light on, who is the head of CAA. Between that and uh, William Morris, so like the top or Endeavor are the top major agencies, but you've been talking about oil and you've talked about IMG, so you've been talking about boutique agencies. So can you kind of explain the difference between a boutique agency versus a full service agency? Sure. Okay. So like IMG, for example, you know, there are managers who help to guide the careers of these classical musicians and dance companies. Um, And then there are also the booking agents, which is the team of salespeople who are calling every day based on, you know, whatever the tour is. So a manager um, might come to the booking team and say, hey, we want to do a spring tour and we want it to be on the West Coast for two weeks. And then we want it, you know, here's what we basically want. And then the booking agents would have to execute that. Um, and then of course there's you know all sorts of promotion around that as well. So um, every artist is a little bit different whether they want full service or not. So with an agency like IMG, there were lots of nuances. So certain artists were just being managed, certain artists were just being booked, certain artists were being managed and booked. It's a little bit of like a a case-by-case basis, a choose-your-own-adventure, if you will. So, and that was kind of the case with Columbia Artists as well, um, with Opus 3 Artists. Those are sort of the big three of the performing arts world, the ones that all manage, you know, opera and orchestra and classical and dance and world music, those performing arts. Um, Those agencies all function similarly in the sense that they provide management and career guidance they also provide full service booking um, and promotion of that tour. And then of course, you know, everything in between. Did all of the acts, artists you dealt with, did they have management or were some of them self-managed? Some of them were self-managed. Some of them had managers and each come with their own challenges. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a manager can feel like a major roadblock, I got to be honest, because the manager is speaking for the artist and you never know if this is something that's coming from the artist or something coming from the manager. So you have to decide who you're going to trust and in what capacity you're going to be working with them. Um, when an artist is advocating for themselves, that can be difficult as well because they have oftentimes many pie in the sky sort of ideas like I want to be performing at Carnegie Hall which is you know it's not always pie in the sky but you know we have to get you to these other eight venues or build your career so that when you do perform at Carnegie it matters and it it's it's a you know we're on the right track here so sometimes it's easier to rely on a manager to have that kind of a conversation with an artist because they are more emotional and artistic because they're artists, obviously. So um, it helps to have a manager in those cases. 
Um, I do tend to think that it's always a little bit easier to deal with a manager than directly with the artist. If you deal with directly with the artist, you become a therapist, um, nutritionist, whatever the case may be, you know, you become everything to them with regard to their career. And if you're also trying to book the tour or, you know, it, it becomes difficult, fussy and difficult. And it's, it's, a, it's different in that world because revenue stream wise, they're different from pop artists who can earn revenue from recording and publishing, for example. And a lot of the artists you're dealing with, we're dealing with, whether it's on the classical side, uh, performing arts side, or even jazz, they're interpret they're doing interpretations of previously written material. And if they even, if they did record it, they're not making much money at all. Maybe, I don't even know if uh, merch wise, if there's much merch for them um, versus, you know, the pop world, Kiss will sell, Kiss is not a great example. They'll sell a million dollars of merch in the night, but even some indie band can sell five, hundred to fifteen hundred dollars worth worth of merch in a night mm-hmm. coming place somewhere i don't know if she's selling t-shirts or if she's selling you know um yeah and hats and jackets yeah, yeah it's such it's a good observation um the merch situation in the classical world is not not that great you know i mean they'll do they have of course they'll do a record deal but there really isn't a lot of money in it at all um, it really, I, I think the live performing aspect of it is, is paramount in the performing arts, the classical, the jazz world. Um, and so selling tickets becomes the biggest, most important thing and the biggest challenge, right? I mean, you've got to get butts and seats and how are you going to do it? And this is the biggest challenge for a venue manager or a talent buyer. Great. I have this amazing world-renowned jazz musician coming. Who's my target audience? How do I get them to buy a ticket? How do I price it? You know, what are, what are their, what's going on in their life and how can I fit myself into it? And it's a constant conversation. Do I sell it in a package, a three show deal over the course of the season? I feel like, you know, my conversations with venue managers, it was all about, well, great. I love this person. I love this work. I love this, this thing as much as you do. But can I sell it? And, and so the biggest challenge and the biggest reason people would say, no, I'm not gonna book your artist is because I can't sell it. I can't get anybody else to come out and, and wanna see this esoteric like jazz thing that's also you know based on a storybook from 1929, you know, like all these like cool concepts that we as artists and artist managers and, and booking agents just freaking love. But how are you gonna get how are you going to get a 40 year old mom of three who has date night one night <laughs> in the month to spend $60 on a ticket? You know, you're asking a lot of people who have busy lives to, to give you their money. And so that's, that's the constant challenge here is, is getting people to buy a ticket for something they don't necessarily know or know very well. That was my, con- that was the bulk of my conversations as a booking agent, how to, how to generate interest. Yeah, I always say, I mean, we have it in the book too, but I've been saying it for 30 years. Concerts don't sell, events sell out. Mm. have to make your, whatever you're doing, an event. And Mm. how are we going to do that? And I think part of the problem, I've always felt this, part of the problem with classical music is, of course, that stoic nature that you have this presidium arch and and it can't be broken in any way 
And one of the greatest concerts I ever went to was in the 70s when the um, every Fisher Hall was being or renovated. There were no seats. And it was in May, it was the start of their uh, pop sort of series, whatever you want to call that, uh, with uh, a conductor called uh, Andre Castellanos, who was a big on RCA and doing sleigh ride and all of that. So when you, when in, you entered uh, Philharmonic Hall, they gave you a whistle seat, a little little whistle seat, you know, plastic, little, and sit anywhere. Oh. So you could sit underneath the violin and, and the, the, the orchestra was on the floor, not mm -hmm. on the stage. And people were just, after, after one song, you pick up your whistle seat and you go somewhere else and you, and it was the greatest thing because that was broken. You know, you ever notice like on a, when the um, violinist comes out to tune something and something happens, whether, and he turns around and everybody laughs and that arch is broken and, and that just feels, ah. Mm -hmm. And I think being in the seat and having that mother with three people on, she's gonna have to go there and just sit there rather than if I go to whosoever concert and I'm doing this and letting out all that mm -hmm. energy. We're, we're assigned to this. That's all we can do. So mm -hmm. you can sit there and that greatest part in the Mahler symphony comes up and you finally, you go like this, because that's what you're allowed to do. You know, instead of going, yeah. yeah. And I think it has always really sort of held back many people that, I mean, I know many, you know, jazz and, and pop guys that go, boy, you know, I've got into, I'm going to make an example. I got into Mozart. I can't believe what I hear. It's just unbelievable. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, especially the jazz guys that know harmonies and that can follow, you know, the progressions and so on. Uh, mm -hmm. I always thought that was just one of the real impossible things to to break. But if it was broken, mm -hmm. it would be great. And I think that's what helps Tanglewood and all of those, because in the summer, the shirt sleeves, you know, yeah. the musicians on stage We're in uh, uh, and I've been in tales. We're in tails. Will you see tails on the street? No, tails. It, it, all it is is a museum. I mean, Lincoln Center is, yeah. you know, it's a museum. You go in, and and you do whatever was done at that particular time the piece was was uh, made. But I think that I always give a lot of credit to classical agents and so on that can sort of understand that and break that, you know, that thing. And mm -hmm. I mean, a, a Yo-Yo Ma knows he's got to create an event. I mean, he's gotten, he got it. You know, and I'm sure Renee Fleming has gotten it too, just because she's mm -hmm. been on both sides so much. Yeah. Just, another concert in Beethoven's Fifth. What the hell do I want to hear that? It's going to be faster, slower, who cares? You know? I know, I know. It's, it's often I find the people who are coming to tickets, it's kind of like you're preaching to the choir, right? The people who are coming are the ones who already know it well, who love it, who love the prestige, who who just love being there for the thing that they know. Yeah. Um, those people though, are of an older generation often and, and they're going away. So yeah. we are quickly getting to a point where things need to change and it's the ongoing conversation, I think with a lot of venue managers, how do we bring in a younger audience? Nobody has figured it out. Nobody. One Lindsay Sterling has figured it out. She has figured it out. Yeah. But she's she like the one. And, and that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to bring up the audience that you're trying to reach. I used to work uh, with Universal Music Group. And one of our accounts 
was Reader's Digest. I was with the division that would sell compilation. Back then it was compilation CDs and we would manufacture these and, and license music specifically for certain publications, for example, that would be included with that month's edition of them. Mm -hmm. And one thing about Reader's Digest that our executives were always saying is, we can't rely on them because their audience is literally dying out, <sighs> shrinking, shrinking, shrinking. It's like going to church. Mm -hmm. you know, church in the United States is um, having difficulties. Your traditional religions, you know, a lot of them are shrinking because a lot of the traditional churchgoers are, are dying out, literally dying out. So classical, jazz, everybody who is still coming up, the, the high school kid, the college kid, they're following the same model that has been followed for 50 or 60 years. Let me shed, let me practice, 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 practice. Then I'm going to get an agent, then I'm going to get gigs. And mm -hmm. I think everybody gets it. And this is what I want to bring to you is, so what, what is, can you kind of explain, I mentioned Lindsay Sterling, what Lindsay Sterling is doing and what should artists be doing? Because they're the ones that should be making your job easier. Not mm -hmm. just, this is what I am here. Do your thing. It should be, what do you need me to do? And I, I need to be, you know, you. Well, I'm answering for you. So, well, amen to that, brother, because no artist says to a manager, what can I do to make your life easier? Yeah. That has never happened in the history of the world. So I appreciate that you saying that. And I hope maybe some artists hear that. <laughs> but um, these days, the people who are selling tickets are the people who have a very strong social media presence. And it's the biggest thing you can do to bring in a younger audience. You need to be on Instagram. You need to have a YouTube channel. Um, and you need to be actively promoting yourself on every social media outlet that people are on. Um, so you need to be active. You need to be responsive. Um, and you need to be creating a buzz that way. You know, I mean, so the problem is there's so much noise. There's so much action out there. Um, so it becomes a blessing and a curse, right? Because anyone can have a YouTube channel. How do you differentiate? Well, you can hire people. You can hire a social media expert. And, and sometimes I feel like at this stage of um, where we are in the world with internet, that is more valuable than hiring a manager, first mm -hmm. off. If I sometimes think that your social media presence needs to be built strongly and quickly before you get a manager who doesn't have a strength or enough experience in social media the manager knows how to call a lot of venues or you know how to guide your career in certain aspects but i don't think managers are really experts in social media mm -hmm. and if you want to hit a younger audience and the younger audience is what's going to sustain you through your career you want to hit somebody in their 20s you got to be online and you got to be really popular Right. So I, you know, advice for an artist who's looking to gain popularity isn't necessarily to sign with a manager right now. It's, it's to work on your online presence and find a marketing person who specializes in that. Here are two good examples when we talk about that. And I don't understand why it's in the pop world, but not in the jazz or classical world. I have one artist today who I, who I manage, um, Zach Matari. And he's doing a big thing on TikTok today. Like TikTok is sponsoring this big live event that he's doing at three o'clock um, EST that he did in conjunction with um, a distributor that we have. And he's gonna perform a live set and he's gonna talk, he's, he's Arab American and this is, a, uh, we're in April now, Arab American Heritage Month. 
And so he's going to be doing a TikTok live, but TikTok itself is going to promote it, but it's going to be a big thing. And maybe he'll get 50, 100,000 people to watch his TikTok, which will help grow his following. It's going to make, not going to make him a star overnight, but it's going to help the build. And it's mm-hmm. build over time. Another artist I have, I manage has a song coming out in May that is about mental health, mental health aware. And May is mental health awareness month. So we were talking this morning about her TikTok and Instagram reels campaign and what she can do during the month of uh, mental health awareness so that for 30 days, she can post these things that are not just about stream me, look at me, I'm great, I'm great, it's my song, my song. It's all about mental health awareness and the background will be her song. So I bring that back to jazz or classical or, or other genres of music. If you want to put out your album or you, and they always want to put out albums, they don't want to put out singles. You're going to put out your, my, my monk thing, my, you know, my whatever like has never been done before, really. So, um, all right. So what are the songs on that? How can I put that music on TikTok? How can I do something? How can I post and do what the pop people are doing? Why does that have to be just what they do? You know, and that, and that brings us back to Lindsey Sterling, who is a violinist, who did a great thing I saw on Instagram a week or, it was either Instagram or, or uh, TikTok, but a week or two ago, she did, here's what I look like on stage. It was about just a four or five seconds of her on stage lights moving around really fast. And then it was just written, here's what I do to practice for that. And you saw her just in her bedroom, spinning around, <laughs> playing the violin. It was like, wow, in a regular bedroom, this is what she did. And to get good on stage, she was just spinning around, learning to play. And it was so real and so simple. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it brought it down to earth. And why don't more people do that? And I think I think a lot of it is being lazy. I think a lot of it is being too, oh, I'm above that. And I think it's you're you're being stupid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, too, 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 too. Yep. I, I would 100% wow. agree with their being stupid. I think that the performing arts world, classical, jazz, you know, they may say that they're keeping up with trends, but they're not. Um, they still like to rely on a manager and an agency to do for them what needs to be done. And if I've learned anything, it's that those who take control of their own careers from a social media standpoint, they're the ones that are generating the most interest. They're the ones, so it feels like a catch 22, you know, every manager and every agency wants an artist who's got a following already. But lots of artists wanna be with an agency that's gonna get them a following. So you're kind of stuck in this catch 22. And when you've got these agencies that are built on old school ideal ideals, um, you know, handshakes and boys club, which, you know, I've seen enough of it to like choke a horse for the love of God. Like it's still very old school at these agencies. They don't use tech. They don't, they don't do much to further their own agendas. Um, because they're stuck in a world that feels stuffy, just like sitting in a seat, having to be quiet and listen to the orchestra play. You know, that stuff's happening at the agencies too. There's not a whole lot of really modern, modern technologies. I mean, you know, the places I've worked, they're working this like janky old uh, database that like no one can work unless you like close your eyes and dance around it for 10 seconds you know it's like ridiculous it's like they were developed in the 90s because it was like a custom database at the time they're loath to get rid of it when there are 10 pieces of software out there that could just rock their worlds if they would just use them you know and they're not even that expensive yeah so 
And that's the thing I've learned actually stepping outside of the performing arts is that there's this whole world of tech and a way to pull data together to help you get better at what you're doing. That I don't feel the classical, the jazz, the dance world are taking advantage of. Mm -hmm. And until they do, they're gonna continue to be stuck in these old ways. And blame the, uh, just the massification of music in the pop field that they don't wanna have any part of. I and agree. They, they was right, you know, what, what makes, I mean, I always say this that I read with Snoop Dogg tweets every day himself. So if you have a, you're a follower of his and you get a tweet from him, oh my God. <laughs> and that goes, I mean, what that does, you know, yeah. and we understand it. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the, it's, it's really has comes down to, <laughs> comes down to that whole thing that I'd say concerts don't sell, but events sell out. Make mm -hmm. whatever you're doing an event. Yeah. And you have to do it. Somebody, yeah. the manager, you have to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's so much, I think so much stress put on the managers and the agents to try to guide the careers of these people. And really, if they would, you know, artists themselves just sort of jump in and, and do some stuff um, on social media. Now, of course, you know, if they're acting like idiots, that has to be reeled in a little bit. So it, it should be calculated in a way. Mm -hmm. um, somebody like Lindsey Sterling, um, I don't know much about her social media presence other than it's pretty phenomenal. Like I would guess she's got a team, you know, people like her would have an entire team of people deciding what she posts and when and what on which outlets, you know, they're like, it's a whole team. Absolutely. You know, that's, that's something that I would, I would really look into if I was an artist looking to get more, more attention is focus on that. And, and even before that, so much can be done on your own for, mm -hmm. before they, because there's the idea of, uh, all right, I have X amount of money. What do I spend it on? Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's, uh, and it's a finite amount of money. And again, the revenue streams for classical jazz, et cetera, are not what they are for pop because at least again, pop can, make a few bucks from streaming if they're putting up music and they're getting, I'm not talking about billions of streams. I'm talking about if you can get, I don't know, a hundred thousand streams over time, over your catalog, that can give you a thousand bucks or something, you know? So mm -hmm. you can make use reinvest that and buy some t-shirts that you can sell and earn a margin of, you know, five times margin or something on that. So um, yeah, I, I talked to somebody in the jazz world who manages himself He's a Grammy Award winner. Um, he lost 168 gigs last year from the pandemic. Yeah, he does not do merch and he has an agent, but that's that's his team is himself and his agent. When he gets a label deal, he gets something, you know, and he'll record, you know, and but they're all, they're not vanity deals, but um, the labels know that they're going to put out this trio that's going to do the, 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 Ella Fitzgerald songbook or something like that, knowing that it's really uh, a prestige thing for the label. They're only going to, if they make physical, they're only going to print up the bare minimum that they need to, but it mm -hmm. looks good in the catalog and maybe in the future they can license it for a film or for something like that. So um, mm -hmm. from an artist's perspective, again, you're not, you didn't write those songs. So you're just a performer. Maybe you're getting some money from if it's on Sirius XM or something, but um, yeah, it's, it's so much is built around, live yep and and to your point with these 
with these vanity deals, they're used for promotion, right? So you could turn around and say on Facebook and on whatever social media, look at this album I just put out, you know, um, but it's still not doing, it's still not furthering a whole lot. You know, it is, it's purely, it's purely vanity deal. And it's like a project for project sake. And I don't know, I don't know if that sounds bitter on my part at all, but I just feel like it, you know, the industry as a whole, the performing arts just need to figure out a way to launch themselves into present day. Um, yeah, it's not bitter. I think it just needs to reinvent, you know, it's yeah. for it. This was the time for, and you're probably going to see as we come out of the pandemic, um, just out of necessity, a number of these performing arts groups or these artists are hopefully have learned a bunch over the last year and have mm -hmm. time into how can I do a better job when this comes back. So that mm -hmm. well, it's like maybe it's also being human. I mean, look what Pavarotti did. You know, they teamed him up with just about everybody from Sting to I forget who we. I saw him with uh, oh James Brown doing it to Man's World. I mean, and he just became human, and mm -hmm. almost like you know, here's that big guy you know that we love and so on. But they got to be human, and a lot of times it's really that it comes from their teacher saying you're special and blah blah. Yes, I know, and you know, in the pandemic, there are so many people who have tried to launch streaming platforms for yeah. live music for live musicians, and I don't think anybody um, has really hit on one that captures live music. You know, there's just there's no replacement for it. I mean, me sitting here looking at you, handsome gentleman, it's wonderful, but how much better would it be if I was sitting at a table with you in person? There's no replacement for in-person right. live music, right? Yeah. So like all of these things that, that people have tried to do with regard to live music, I, I don't think I've seen, have you? Have you seen anything that feels like a really great replacement? The New York Philharmonic has gotten the, the money to do, I mean, their presence has been pretty good. Mm -hmm. um, almost instant they'll announce it that's going to be tonight and so on they'll do just the brass section or yeah they'll, they'll do different things plus that what they call it a i forgot what they called it during the summer was it a hayride or something or a pickup truck pickup truck that's what and they went mm -hmm. around and they would have like just a duo or something yeah so they, yeah. they put a lot of effort into it instead of uh Peter Gold just saying we're going to lay off most of the Met and shut the Yeah, door. it's over. Sorry, guys. <laughs> I mean, that's the only yeah. one I've seen that's really, I think, made an effort to be sort of special. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I've had friends in the music industry who have tried to develop, you know, some remote events and things. And, you know, they're going relatively well, but it's still, it's still just everyone is doom and gloom and kind of waiting for this to be over so they can get back to... Yeah their lives and the sad part is it's you know we're looking at years of people being afraid to go to a performing arts center afraid to sit next to somebody and god forbid if somebody starts coughing it's going to be like a yeah. freaking i don't know what <laughs> well i know that this has been a really good interview and i know Lindsay, you were concerned at one point are we going to have enough to talk about and here we just went through our full interview and actually we could have kept going because this has been a <laughs> very good discussion Dave, so Dave did not get heartburn no, I'm feel. I'm glad I had my lunch because uh, I'm I'm fully hydrated. I'm fully protein, <laughs> and I can live the rest of my day. I'm very excited, and that's all because of you, Lindsay. You you provide oh. the real energy that I needed to make it through the day. I mean, I did talk nonstop, giving you the opportunity to chew your food, and uh, thank you for having me on. I was really thrilled to see you oh, both, great. and um, 
to have a chance to talk your ears off for an hour solid. <laughs> Which was fun. We, we asked for it. So it's not all your fault. You did. You did ask. This is your fault. You asked That's for right. it. We do try to have interviews where we don't allow the person we're asking questions of to ever answer. We usually yeah. answer for them and they're, they're just there for the eye candy. You actually used your brain to your advantage and it worked, I think. She falls into that other category where sometimes we ask one question and we look at our watch and an hour's gone by the guy has to yeah, stop. That, that's right. So, but those aren't so bad, those interviews. So, yeah. Marconi, we do need to end this. So, yes, we, do. Show, hey, we do. I what do we, at the end of every show, Lindsay, guess what do you think? What do you think we say at the end of every interview, Lindsay? I don't know. That's all, folks? I don't know. That's close. It's, it's, it's a synonym for that keyword phrase. Marconi, you ready? Sure. At the end of every show, we don't say goodbye because that would be silly. We don't say that's all, folks, because that's copywritten and trademarked by the Bugs Bunny group. At the end of every show, we say, Adios! Adios! Say it once, say adios! Adios. I would have preferred adios like this, but she said adios. <laughs> yeah. I could be whatever you need And then some of them to see All yours nightmare That's me, believe Dress me up or strip me down Come play with me Baby, truth or dare I can sugarcoat all the bad tastes Make you fall to your knees Praying on Sunday Hey